comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The political events move at a dizzying speed. The community finds itself repeatedly tested with robust crises. Bitter disputes arise among the people who will be our, our next leader, the leader of this nation. Even family members disagree about how to proceed in these turbulent times. Add to this a sense of spiritual alienation among those who have spent their whole lives dedicated and committed to their faith. The fabric of the community rapidly unravels. Life feels so unsettling. Who do you think I am describing? Could it be the chaos of life in the 13 colonies just before the ride of Paul Revere in the American Revolution? Is it Europe? after the fall of Rome? Could it be a description of our present-day modern American life? You and I live in a world where high school students feel the fear of violence because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Within our own close-knit circle of family and friends, we vehemently disagree on topics like abortion and reproductive health and banned books and immigration. Over the summer, we lamented the record hot temperatures and the catastrophic storms while we debated with one another about how much we humans have contributed or not to climate change. We feel hopeful sometimes about the progress we have made in race relations, and yet we look around and we wonder why Sunday still feels like the most segregated hour in America. 
We lament the decline in participation across all religious groups in this nation when we think that community and faith could be the very building blocks of hope in our society. Perhaps that descriptions I mentioned about people who are facing exhaustion and despair and hopelessness could describe many different points in human history, but the phrases that I used at the beginning are all scholarly descriptions of people in the Bible who lived 500 years before the time of Jesus. This people of God called Israel are wondering if God has passed them by or if God can still be counted on to deliver them from chaos. It is to these people that the prophet Isaiah spoke the message that we heard from chapter 40 a moment ago. The ancient people of Israel were facing a nagging sense of doubt about their own faith. They felt hopeless about the future. You see, a pivotal event had happened in their lifetimes, the year 587. The temple in Jerusalem, the holiest of all the holy places on the earth, had been destroyed by their enemies and was lying in a pile of rubble. Joe and I could take you downstairs and show you the chaos of construction, which is nothing compared to seeing your beloved temple completely in ruins, destroyed by your enemies. That capital city of Jerusalem had not only lost its sacred structure, but they had experienced brain drain as the creative entrepreneurs, the brightest scholars, the best musicians, the powerful political minds had all moved away, been exiled to the nation of Babylon and started life over there as refugees. Back home around that holy city of Jerusalem were vineyards, miles and miles of vineyards abandoned. The people, God's people known as Israel feel weary, exhausted, and they are bickering with one another. The younger generation has very little memory of this sacred space called Jerusalem, the holy city. And so the younger generation says, let's stay here in exile where we've made new friends and put down new roots and started new businesses. And the older generation says, oh, no, let's go home and remember God's good old days in the holy city of Jerusalem. The suffering seems too much. God seems absent or at best uncaring and aloof. It is to these tired people, weary people, that God speaks those words, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Today's scripture from Isaiah 40 dares to proclaim a message of hope for people in despair. This God, says Isaiah, is not absent. Not only can God act, God will act. Isaiah paints a portrait of life restored. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be made low. Isaiah describes a God who will gather us up like a shepherd gathering sheep in God's arms. A God who will lead us like a mother sheep leads her lambs through the pastures. Isaiah speaks, but the prophet Isaiah does not give us a God who will do a magic trick and fix the world's messes. Isaiah gives us hope, 
but not a God who is a genie with a magic wand to repair the world. So what is it that Isaiah offers? My favorite part of Isaiah comes in these final verses that we heard a moment ago. The prophet says that what God offers is God's wings. Have you ever been taken under someone else's wings? Maybe there was a colleague at work who spotted you in your first week and said, let, let me take you to coffee. Let me tell you how it's done around here. Let me tell you about that person in the corner office. Maybe there was a professor in college, one who connected with you, who mentored you, who wrote you letters of recommendations and talked to you before and after class about kind of what was exciting to you about this subject. Or maybe on your own block, you have taken a neighbor under your wings and sheltered him after his wife died, and you invited him over for dinner to, to not be so lonely and spend time with your family. We know the comfort of being under another person's wings. The image of being under God's protective wings was not new to Isaiah. It is sprinkled all throughout Scripture. It starts actually in the second book of the Bible, in Exodus, where the story is told about how God rescued the people from slavery in Egypt and took them safely across the parted Red Sea and into the Promised Land. And when we are told that story, God says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The image of God's wings is an image of God's divine power that keeps repeating itself throughout Scripture so that the people come to associate God's wings with God's divine power, God's safekeeping, God's refuge, God's gentle love. Being under God's wings is to be in sacred space. This summer, I met a woman in the shadow of God's wing. I arrived in the French Alps at a monastery where 12 nuns live. The nuns wear habits, full-length habits. They gather in the chapel 12, uh, seven times a day. These 12 nuns march in and they sing the prayers early in the morning, mid-morning, noon, early afternoon, late afternoon, evening. They sing the prayers, and in between the prayer services, they make chocolate and olive oil from the olive trees on their land. And they also have a little guest house where pilgrims like me can come to pray with them and to enjoy the solitude and the quiet. And when I first arrived, there was this woman in the kitchen, and I couldn't figure out who she was. She didn't seem to be a nun. She wasn't wearing a habit, but she didn't seem to be new, a pilgrim like me either. She seemed to kind of know her way around. She had her own food. We shared a kitchen, but she ate on her own. She was so kind and polite to me, showing me where's the tea, where's the coffee, here's the food. And I quickly learned within a day or two she was a refugee from the Ivory Coast in Africa. 
the Catholic Church, I learned in France, has a program where Catholic families take in a refugee for six weeks into their home. And after six weeks, the refugee moves to another family's home, into another family home, and another, and this monastery was one of those homes. They live like this until their paperwork is complete and the refugee can move out on their own and get their own work. Until then, they live in the shadow of the wings of the church. And the monastery participates just like many Catholic homes all throughout France. This practice did not begin with the Catholics who were French. It began a long time ago, even before the time of Jesus. In the Hebrew tradition, there was a custom that if someone died in an accidental way, the killer could flee to a city of refuge, a sanctuary city. And the Greeks and the Romans also created places of sanctuary, and early Christians had a similar practice. In fact, once I visited a grand cathedral in Durham, England, and they had a huge bronze sign on the door that said, fugitives, please knock on the door. You may come in and spend 40 days here until you decide what to do next. It was a sign that had been on the doors of that church since the Middle Ages. Our own nation practiced a similar custom during the days of the Underground Railroad, where churches and private homes provided shelter to fleeing slaves. And some churches, even today, as we sit here, are providing sanctuary, the shelter of God's wings, to undocumented people in our land. In chapter 40 of Isaiah, we read a twist on this idea of God's wings. In the previous passages, we are under the shelter of God's wings. But today's lesson says it differently. It says, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I was confused. Who is they? Isaiah proclaims that the tired, exhausted, weary people will now become the wings, the shelter for one another. Here, the whole tone of Isaiah shifts this is a move in what the future will be like. It is not just that God comforts with God's wings. It is that we join God in sheltering others. We receive God's divine power. We are given the strength we need to walk, to run, to endure, to rise up, to lift others up. Those who wait upon God will take on some of God's divine power characteristics. God will not lift alone, says the prophet Isaiah. God will strengthen God's weary people to rise up like wings of an eagle. God shelters us, of course, with tender compassion, but more so, God empowers us to create sacred space for others on this earth. Last spring, as we were preparing to make the final commitment to host this Considering Matthew Shepherd concert, we were talking about, will the building be ready? Will the organ be ready? Will the lights be ready? Will the sound system be ready? Will we be ready? And about that time, 
I came across a story. I learned that Matthew Shepard was an acolyte as he grew up in the St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Casper, Wyoming, and that his church had always been one of the few places where Matthew felt safe. He dearly loved his church. And while many college students drift away from their faith, when Matthew Shepard got to University of Wyoming, he joined the Canterbury Club for Episcopal College students. Matt was offered a ride home one night from some new friends that he met while he was out socializing. The friends were imposters, haters of gay people, and they beat him and left him for dead on a fence post. After his funeral, Matt's parents never buried his ashes because they were afraid that someone would desecrate his grave. But after 20 years, his ashes were buried in the Washington National Cathedral near President Woodrow Wilson's, near Helen Keller's, buried in the crypt just below the communion table in that glorious sacred space. And at the ceremony, his parents said that finally they could rest knowing that their son's remains were in a sacred, safe place. And that in this very sacred sanctuary, other people could be inspired to create a kinder, gentler, safer space for all people. Last year, this article I read talked about a new portrait that had been painted of Matthew Shepard by an artist who typically paints highly regarded religious figures. He painted Matthew and placed the painting in the crypt. It was portraying him in the red flannel shirt that his parents had given him for Christmas. And above his head are these swirling ribbons. And the ribbons form a tapestry. And on the tapestry, you read the many prayers that were sent to Matthew's parents in the weeks after his death. Every parent knew Matthew could have been their child. Every child is at risk of senseless hate. Their prayers and cards and letters and casseroles and demands for better laws sheltered a grieving family with God's most tender compassion. When I read this story, I didn't care if the lights were ready, if the sound was ready, if the sanctuary was ready. I knew we had to do this concert. I was blown away by the power of sacred space to shelter even ashes, the power of the church to create wholeness and healing and safety and love in a world so divided. We are given the power of God to welcome other people in sacred space. We can mount up like wings of an eagle. 